the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The emancipation. Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. Social Kropotkinism, the best new normal for survival in the post-COVID-19 climate emergency world by Dr. Jennifer Cole. Royal Holloway, University of London. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about some reflections I've had on how the anarchist thinker Peter Kropotkin is, or rather isn't, positioned within the field of human evolutionary biology. This research comes out of a project on mutual aid during the COVID-19 pandemic, led by my colleague Dr Ollie Mould, also of Royal Holloway, and to which Dr Adam Badger, now of the Oxford Internet Institute, and Professor Phil Brown of Huddersfield University also contributed. Those of you who already know of Peter Kropotkin's work as an anarchist philosopher probably already know that he was also an evolutionary biologist, writing shortly after Charles Darwin's seminal work on the origin of species. Kropotkin's approach to evolution focused on the importance of collaboration rather than competition as the underlying driver of human evolution, development and survival. So why then has social Darwinism entered the language when social Kropotkinism has not? an idea based on mutual support and community cooperation, as opposed to Darwinian survival of the fittest, has great value as a societal organising principle to promote social justice and equitable distribution of increasingly scarce resources. This is something that's going to be increasingly important in the post-pandemic climate emergency world. In this podcast, using case studies observed through the original research my colleagues and I undertook with food banks, community groups, faith networks, schools and others during the COVID-19 pandemic, I suggest that a re-emergence of Kropotkin's ideas of mutualism are long overdue, particularly when considered alongside the blossoming of community-level mutual aid we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, and which has, in turn, exposed and filled many cracks in UK government provision of welfare and social care. I think it's important to say at this stage that when I first became involved in the mutual aid project, I'd never heard of Kropotkin and was barely aware of anarchist studies of the field despite having studied human evolution in my undergraduate degree and having retained an interest in human evolution and adaptation throughout my entire career. The difference in how Kropotkin and Darwin have been remembered couldn't be more different, and I think it's important to reflect on why. The current COVID-19 crisis has presented a stark warning for the future on the need for better collaboration if we are to address global challenges, particularly those from climate change, successfully. While keeping one eye on the future, however, the past offers some valuable suggestions on why we are more likely to succeed if we work together. Put simply, a desire to do so may well be hardwired into our biology. In 1902, Peter Kropotkin, a Russian philosopher who is remembered today mostly for his radical politics, wrote about the value of cooperation in his book Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolution. The idea for the book came partly from his observations of a Molucca crab in the Brighton Aquarium, He recalled being amazed by the extent of mutual assistance which these clumsy animals are capable of bestowing upon a comrade in case of need. One of them had fallen upon its back in a corner of the tank. His comrades came to the rescue. They came to at once, pushed their friend from beneath, and after strenuous efforts succeeded in lifting it upright. But then an iron bar would prevent them from achieving the work of rescue. After many attempts, one of the helpers would go into the depths of the tank and bring two other crabs. 
Kropotkin was struck not only by the fervour with which these crabs assisted their fellow, but the mutualisation of that effort. He went on to show that such mutualism is embedded in many creatures, including humans. His writings came less than 50 years after Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species had introduced the then highly controversial idea of human evolution, and he sought to take forward Darwin's observations with a deeper understanding of human nature. But today, while we often hear the term social Darwinism used to describe human competition and dog-eat-dog survival that often tries to excuse social inequality as the failings of the weak, there's no corresponding discussion of social Kropotkinism, which would celebrate instead the human capacity for collaboration and sharing. But there should be. As we exit the pandemic and turn our thoughts to how we reorganise society to be more resilient, itself a highly contested term that is often considered to perpetuate a state of vulnerability from which citizens need the state to rescue them, to the next Anthropocene emergency, it may be time to rehabilitate Kropotkin as a grandfather of evolutionary biology rather than just an anarchist philosopher. But first, a history lesson. Evolutionary biologists and quaternary scientists such as Lamia Khalidi tell us that around 10,000 years ago, the termination of the African humid period, during which Africa was wetter and more verdant than today, did something very special to the early humans who lived through it. This period of unusual stability in a previously harsh climate had made food more secure and plentiful, allowing our human ancestors to forage comfortably over smaller areas. No longer dependent on having to range over large areas to find food, humans started to settle. They painted cave walls, domesticated animals, built ships and laid the foundation of cities. But this unusual period of climate stability didn't last, and as the environment became once again more challenging, humans responded in a new and very unique way. They intensified agriculture and began to extensively modify the land, farming new crops and taking the first steps on the journey to the highly complex societies we know today. To do this, they had to cooperate, to work together towards common goals in order to achieve something that could not be achieved by one human alone. Some of this cooperation, such as the skills needed for hunting a deer, or which required a division of labour, for example for collective childminding, cooking, hunting or shelter construction, was well embedded in social behaviour by the time the African plains started to dry out. Suggesting that Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis evolution was by this time already selecting for the most cooperative individuals. How and why cooperation happens has fascinated evolutionary biologists for as long as the field has existed. Today, explanations for it are most prominent in the work of Michael Tomasello, co-director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology in Germany. He points to a joint intentionality or sense of we that is unique to humans, driving the way we think and act and forming the basis for human morality. Experiments by Tomasello and his colleagues, including Katharina Harman, show that humans are more naturally cooperative and collaborative than chimpanzees. Anthropologists Adrian Jagey and Michael Gervin have showed that the larger and more complex societies become, the more valuable and attractive to mates good cooperators become. Chimpanzees, our closest biological relative, may hunt side by side, but they then squabble over the spoils. Humans work cooperatively and share. Tomasello and others have shown that doing so seems to be hardwired into our psychology through a dual sense of, on the one hand, altruism, we truly care about our fellow humans, even if we have nothing to gain from it, far more than is seen in other animals, and on the other, obligation. Once altruism has embedded itself in our group thinking, such altruism becomes obligate, both a driver of and essential for the development of more complex social roles and, by extension, society. The social theorist Jeremy Rifkin has discussed a neurological phenomenon called mirror neurons, 
first discovered by Italian scientists in the 1990s, which allows those who have such neurons to empathetically feel pain they see someone else suffering. They are thus more likely to help. Humans have more of these neurons and are thus more empathetic and helpful to one another than other primates. When we see other humans feeling cold or hungry, we're compelled to help. Rifkin argues that this is proof that our desire to help one another is part of our very human neurobiology, that we're predisposed for empathy, whereas self-interest is a secondary force. Rifkin argues that just as civilization is now globally connected, so too are our empathetic responses. These connections between humans make us part of the same imagined communities, be that community a nation, a religion, a political party, a subculture, or whatever. Though on the downside, this sense of togetherness can then be coerced, manipulated and stayed banished by the state or others. I previously explored the evidence of our innate empathy in the development of care systems that provide for those who are economically inactive in my chapter on who pays for healthcare and why in the book Health and the Anthropocene, Living Well on a Finite Planet. When politicians see terms as we are all in this together, they're drawing on the same understanding that Tomasello articulates of we as a collective entity, more than a collection of eyes who happen to be inhabiting the same space as many animal groups are. We are stronger together. In fact, scientific evidence suggests that the human body can no longer be considered individual at all. In 1997, Dwayne Savage first put forward the view, now widely accepted in microbiology, that the human body is home to many more bacteria than human cells. In recent years, there's been increasing interest in researching the microbiome, the ecological community of commensal, symbiotic and pathogenic organisms that literally share our body space. More than simply living inside us, these microbes act as another organ of the human body, as important to our day-to-day -day functioning as our heart, liver, spleen or brain. This alien community of microbiota can influence the kind of foods we crave, the way we communicate and even the way we think and feel. While our 2,100 or so genes go towards making us who we are, the millions of additional cells in our microbes interact with our bodies to tweak our immune system, shift the working of our guts and brain neurons and generally help us function. As Peter Kramer and Paula Bresson suggested in 2015, Whereas our cohabitation with one another and other organisms may not pose a strong challenge to the commonly shared assumption that humans are unitary individuals, the presence of a large number and wide variety of such entities and the power they have on us renders this assumption untenable. We're not organisms but superorganisms. It's time to change the very concept we have of ourselves and to realise that one human individual is neither just human nor just one individual. This interest in cooperation between humans and between humans and others, including what drove it and how it has intensified over the 400,000 years since Homo sapiens diverged from our last common ancestor, has driven research into the evolution of human morality, partner choice, culture and governance, in fact anything that makes us uniquely human. As Christine Korsgaard says in her book Creating the Kingdom of Ends in 1996, the primal sense of morality is not one in which I do something to you or you do something to me, but one in which we do something together. And yet Kropotkin, the evolutionary biologist who first proposed this, and who set the template for how and why humans cooperate, is largely forgotten, or to be more accurate, ignored by biologists and evolutionists. He is seen today as a radical political philosopher, but with little regard given to the scientific observations on which his philosophy was based. But the COVID-19 pandemic may have set the foundations for a new social Kropotkinism. Over a hundred years before Tomasello was writing about human cooperation, Kropotkin had already recognised that it was mutualism and cooperation that drove early human development, not survival of the fittest. 
We must tread carefully here, because as any evolutionary biologist worth their salt will be quick to point out, when Charles Darwin said survival of the fittest in 1859, he never intended this to mean the biggest, strongest and most able to bully others, but the best suited and or able to adapt to the current environment. The fit he talked about was a fish of a jigsaw puzzle, not an athlete. Humans have survived and flourished because we are adaptable, flexible and most importantly able to manipulate the environment to fit us. This can be achieved on a much faster timescale than is needed by biological evolution to adapt us to the environment. It takes generations of genetic selection to develop thicker fur if the climate becomes colder or thinner fur if it warms, but a shelter can be built in hours, particularly if it can be warmed by fire, and particularly if you collaborate with others to build it. This will inevitably involve having to share the shelter with them once it's built, but that's not much of a price to pay for survival, especially if it means you get to share other things too, such as the food some of your other tribe makes for gathering while you help to build the shelter. Sociologist Lester Frank Ward, writing in 1906 at around the same time as Kropotkin, but on social organisation rather than evolution, lauded the collective intelligence of society, saying... The extent to which society will benefit in the future will be based upon collective intelligence. This is to society what brain power is to the individual. Ward believed that while the society of the day made heroes of great engineers such as Isambard Kingdom Brunel and Thomas Telford, such individual geniuses can do nothing without a social structure that enables them to emerge, supports them and allows them to thrive. Ward saw society as acting collectively. By working together through an enabling mechanism, individual members of society make it much greater than the sum of its parts. Interestingly, at the same time as great thinkers such as Kropotkin and Ward were writing down their thoughts, in the political sphere the cooperative movement was gaining traction as a means of enacting mutual aid at a societal level. The Rochdale pioneers were one of the groups that first codified the aims, objectives and rules of cooperativism as an organising principle. Established by 28 ordinary working people in 1844, the Rochdale pioneers pulled their resources to open a shop offering basic necessities, butter, flour, oatmeal, sugar and candles. An affordable shop of the people, by the people, for the people. In 1907, the cooperative movement introduced a minimum wage, 90 years before it became a legal requirement in the UK. Equality for men and women was enshrined in their mission statement, including equal voting rights, long before this became part of British representative democracy in 1928. 120 years ago, Kropotkin had our evolutionary drivers pegged. But today, while the term social Darwinism is commonplace, used to describe the way in which the strong in society win out over the weak, and often used as an excuse as if inequality is just natural selection playing out, we don't use or even consider social Kropotkinism. Though it's the real, we're all in this together. I hadn't even heard of Peter Kropotkin until I started working with anarchist political geographers. This overlooking of Kropotkin within fields that should naturally embrace him is even more confusing when you consider that nothing in Darwin or Kropotkin's own writings run contrary to those of the other. Only the misuse of both has positioned them at the opposite ends of the political spectrum, pushing social Darwinism as an excuse for eugenics, laissez-faire capitalism and imperialism, more kettling Kropotkin into political rather than biological theory as a grandfather of anarchist philosophy, but not of evolutionary biology. Are we really so scared of the idea that humans evolved not only because we are very good at working together and caring about one another, but also that we might genuinely want to? It has taken another pressing challenge, the global COVID-19 pandemic, to remind us that working together is better for everyone than working apart. 
Scholars of disaster studies, such as Rebecca Solnit, have long lauded the human spirit of togetherness that emerges in the aftermath of hurricanes, floods and other emergencies. And the current crisis has seen a groundswell of mutual aid of precisely the type Kropotkin envisaged, emerging not from outdated notions of charity, but more because deep down we somehow know it's the right thing to do. The COVID-19 crisis has exposed and reminded us of the German sociologist Ferdinand Tonny's ideas of the difference between Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Gemeinschaft is the idea of emotional bonds that hold society together, whereas Gesellschaft is based more on contractual agreements. Since the Industrial Revolution, bonds between people have become more and more contractual, but the pandemic has seen a re-emergence of true community spirit. When the transactional structures between state and citizen failed to deliver, the bonds between people rose again, and the emotional ones outperformed the contracts. But can we retain this beyond the pandemic? And if so, how? I'd argue that the answer lies in turning once again to the philosophy of Peter Kropotkin and the biological drivers it points to that underlie how society should be organised. Under social Kropotkinism rather than social Darwinism, the more natural society becomes one based on the unit of community rather than the individual, a concept that's already seeping into academic fields such as planetary health and sustainability, with a similar rehabilitation of other underrated political thinkers who call for a focus more on communities than individuals, for example, Norbert Elias, who you can see critiqued in the work of Steve Quilly and Catherine Zivert. A renewed focus on more egalitarian and equal communities is needed now more than ever, because the more we share, the more secure we can be in having enough for ourselves and others. This suits the politics and context of the Anthropocene far more than it did the Industrial Revolution. Strive for too much and we risk losing out, not just individually but collectively, in the tragedy of the commons as we see played out across the world from carbon emissions to plastic waste. Through a thoroughly pandemic-inflected lens, it's becoming clear that it isn't always easy to disentangle our individual health from our community's health. If we lose sight of one another and of ourselves collectively, we risk creating the very disasters that only the strongest can survive. The rehabilitation of Kropotkin into evolutionary biology thinking could be the perfect tonic to this impending disaster. We need to repopulate biology and school curricula with these ideas, and at the same time reorient prevailing ideas of Darwin's survival of the fittest to something more akin to what Darwin himself intended. By doing so, we should start to see, as Frank Ward argued for, less of a celebration of humans as individuals, but a celebration of humans as a collective, only able to achieve greatness because we've achieved it together. The field of sociobiology has made some previous attempts to argue for Kropotkin's place in its conceptual framework, but we need to push harder. As a climate emergency increasingly challenges our resources and forces us to adapt to new context, remembering that we survive best when we survive together might just be the strongest message the Anthropocene has. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.